Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. We're doing a sermon series uh, for our Hope Overflowing campaign uh, about giving, and uh, today we're going to think a bit about a uh, bit about how uh, to give shamelessly. Um, and so, I want us to begin by kind of thinking about shame and what shame is. Um, Dr. Dan Allender, uh, founder of the Allender Center, um, who trained most of the guys at the Barnabas Center here in town, um, says that shame is a function of the eyes. And you'll know this if you've ever been caught picking your nose. Um, because all of us pick our nose, right? Let's just be honest. We all do. And we feel no shame about that at all. Unless we look up and someone is looking at us while we're doing it. And then that moment that we make eye contact with them like this, we feel shame, right? And I want us to think a little bit about why, right? Why does it work that way? Well, our culture generally views shame as a byproduct of poor self-esteem. In this view, other people shame you. The source of your shame is external. And they, they do it by making you feel bad about yourself, and our culture's cure to that is to tell you, you really shouldn't feel bad about yourself. You should feel good about yourself. Um, now, it, the, the difficulty with this view is um, it blames them for your shame. They're shaming you. But God's Word uh, doesn't view shame that way. Um, it explains that our shame has a much deeper source. Psalm 97, 7 says, All who served carved images, those who boast in worthless idols, will be put to shame. The biblical understanding of shame is this. We experience shame when our idols get exposed and they fail us, right? So all of us, we're idolaters by heart. Calvin, John Calvin used to say, the human heart is an idol factory. And, uh, and so we do this and we pick idols because they work, right? That's why we pick them. We choose them because they work until they don't. And when they don't, then we feel shame, and idols demand blood. They demand that either we kill off the person whose eyes are causing us to experience shame, or we kill off ourselves um, by pouring contempt. We pour contempt on ourselves, or we pour contempt on another. And so, in this current example, um, if you have your finger up your nose and you look up, and you see somebody looking at you as you pick your nose, you will experience shame in direct proportion to how much their gaze affects your idols. So let's say that you are someone who idolizes power at work, and you're picking your nose at work when you look up and your boss sees you. Or you're someone who idolizes romance, and you're picking your nose, and you look up, and the person you're attracted to sees you. Or you idolize the opinions of others, and anybody sees you. Well, then you're going to feel a lot of shame. 
But if it's one of your kids or someone that you don't know or someone you don't particularly value, your shame will be smaller. It'll be less. And so the shamefulness of being seen is in direct proportion to the idolatry that is being dashed in that moment. But if by God's grace you happen to be so secure in God's love for you that you've learned to embrace the fact that you're human and that humans do need to pick their nose from time to time, then you may actually experience no shame at all. We might even find it funny when we look up and we get busted and we might just be secure enough in Christ to admit that the joke's on us and like laugh at ourselves and invite the person looking at us to join us in the joke, right? Now, that's super rare, but it's still possible. Here's why I bring this up. In our passage today, we're going to meet three shameless people who God uses to teach us how grace leads to shameless giving. The first is Simon. Simon was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a Jewish religious sect founded in 167 B.C. who sought to keep all 613 commandments which were recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures in an effort to secure God's favor. This often happens after the people of God experience a defeat. You'll have an, somebody will stand up and say, hey, we, we experienced this defeat because we sinned, and then the human heart will grab that and go, oh, if we obey perfectly, then we'll be delivered from our enemies, right? That's what will happen. And so the Pharisees had this idea after the Greco-Roman fall of Israel, and they thought, okay, we're just going to get super religious, and then God will give us favor over our enemies, and to help them accomplish this, they came up with several traditions which they observed in addition to the 613 commands in order to make sure that they didn't accidentally break one. So they added all these extra rules on the commands um, to kind of like have a buffer zone between them and the possibility they would break a command. The Apostle Paul, uh, a former Pharisee himself, described what it was like to live this way in Philippians 3, 5-6, through where he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. And so Paul said, mission accomplished. I was able to keep all 613 commands every day of my life for all of my adult life. This approach to life, this kind of white-knuckling approach to religion, um, is one that Simon the Pharisee had embraced. And it led to him having a certain shamelessness, but not the good kind, because it came from this false notion he carried about himself that he was superior to most people and in a fine position to judge them, including Jesus. Look at it in verse 36 of Luke 7. It says this, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them, and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, 
would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Notice where Simon's eyes are. First, they're on the woman. Then they're on Jesus. And then they're on himself. Why? Because Simon's approach to life had caused him to deceive himself in regard to his need of grace. He had a very, very high opinion of himself. In fact, it was inflated, which is very easy for us to do. In uh, one of the best books I read last year, a book called I Told Me So, Self-Deception and the Christian Life by a guy named Greg Tennelshoff, Greg reports this. A survey of one million high school seniors found that 70% thought they were above average in leadership ability, and only 2% thought they were below average. All right? Now remember, 49% of them are below average. In terms of the ability to get along with others, all students thought they were above average. Okay, 100%. All thought, no, 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 I'll get along with others. I'm definitely 100%, you know, better than average on that. 60% thought they were in the top 10%. And 25% thought they were in the top 1% of people who got along well with others. Clearly, a lot of people are wrong about how they stack up in comparison with their peers. Now, we don't grow out of this propensity. Tenoshoff later cites a study that found that 94% of college professors think they do a, quote, better-than-average job. This level of self-deception is so universal that it's easy for us to miss how spiritually dangerous it is. Notice what Simon is doing here. It's perfectly described by Miroslav Volf in the quote that we've put on the front of your bulletin from his book on forgiveness called Exclusion and Embrace. Volf notes this, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of God, the crucified Messiah, for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and themselves from the sphere of proud innocent into the sphere of common sinfulness. Simon's self-deception has caused him to shamelessly exclude himself from the community of sinners. She's a sinner. He excludes this woman from the community of humans. And he excludes Jesus from the community of prophets, thinking Jesus should be ashamed of himself for letting someone like that touch him publicly here in my house, at my dinner party. Who does he think he is? So, the Messiah begins to prophetically expose Simon's idolatry. Verse 40, Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Now, to understand this question, you need to know what a denarii is. A denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. So in a culture with a six-day work week, 500 denarii would be one and a half times your annual salary, which is, you know, in their day and age equivalent to like your mortgage. They didn't have mortgages, but that's how much it would be. And 50 days would be equivalent to two months' worth of work. So, you know, maybe the max on your credit card. And so Jesus is asking, who would love this guy more, the, the one whose mortgage he canceled or the one whose credit card he paid off? And the answer is obvious. Verse 43, Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. I love that Simon said, I suppose, right? I mean, he is still so much holding on to his self-righteousness at this moment. He does not want to be put in his place. I can hear the reticence and the deep skepticism in his voice, and it's pretty obvious he still doesn't get it. At best, he thinks he might be the guy who's maxed out his credit card. So Jesus hands him the bill. Verse 43, You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Notice where Jesus' eyes are here. First, they're on Simon. But after telling him the parable, they turn to the woman. Jesus isn't ashamed of what she's doing. He's proud of her. And why was that? Well, because Jesus' identity rested securely, securely in the pronouncement that his father had made about him on the day he was baptized. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 tell us, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This truth freed Jesus from the need to concern himself with what mere humans thought about him. And it made him shameless. So long as his father was pleased with what he was doing, what other people thought about it didn't matter. And his father was very pleased with what this woman was doing. And why is that? Because she was doing what Simon should have done. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it says this beginning in verse 7, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. She had taken refuge in Jesus, and so she couldn't stop kissing Him. And how did she do that exactly? By paying attention to Jesus' eyes. There are two Greek words in the New Testament which can be translated see. The more common of the two is the Greek word eiden, which means to look at something. The rarer one is the word emblepo, which means to truly see something, to really get it to look deeply at what's going on and realize exactly what's happening. It's only used a handful of times in the Gospels. One occurred in a passage we looked at a few months ago when Jesus fed the 5,000. Mark 6, 34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began to teach them many things. You see, he saw them. That's in Bleppo. And he had compassion on them. So he stopped what he was doing and he gave them what they needed. Another one occurs when Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler who, like Simon, thought he had kept all of God's commandments since childhood. Mark 10, 21 and 22 says, Looking at him, this is in Bleppo, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. The big one takes place at the moment that Peter denies knowing Jesus for the third time on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. It occurs in Luke 22, 60 through 62 where we read, But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and, Mblepo, looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he'd said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. You see, this look... It's a look of compassion that Jesus gives people in need of grace at a turning point in their lives. It is a I see you, idol exposing light of God looking right into the darkness of your soul. So in verse 44, when Simon is asked by Jesus whether or not he sees this woman, what Jesus is asking Simon is, are you Iden looking at her, or are you Mblepo seeing her? Do you, Simon, see her the way I do? Do you see what's happening here? Because what's happening here is beautiful. What he's saying and what she saw in his gaze is, your sin is no surprise to me. It's why I came. Why don't you let me take care of it? 
And she did. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith in what? Her ability to make up for what she had done? Her ability to pay off her debt to Jesus? Her promise to never do it again? Nope. Her faith in His compassionate love for sinners and His sufficiency to forgive them. His power, His authority, His ability to pronounce, it is finished to your sin and to your shame. Which does beg the question, those who were at the table began to say among themselves in verse 49, who is this man who even forgives sins? Who exactly does Jesus think he is? Well, he's the one who God sent to remove our shame. Romans 10, 8-13, Paul says, This is the message we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, there's one place that you can put your faith that will never let you down. One place that you can safely put all of your hopes, and they'll really come true. And that's in the resurrected Lord of glory. So how does Jesus do this? How does he remove our shame? First, by compassionately exposing our idolatry, like he did with this woman and Simon and the rich young ruler and Peter. And then, completely forgiving it for all who, like this woman and Peter, are ready to admit that he's right and that he's their only hope that they need to be saved from their shame because they need to be forgiven for their idolatry. Now, I could talk about this myself, but we thought it would be helpful for you to hear from someone else at Hope. And so today we're going to share a video that Elizabeth Super, who has come to faith at our OP site, uh, willingly volunteered uh, to give us today. So this is Elizabeth Super from our Old Providence site. I'm Elizabeth Super, and I've been a part of Hope since 2020. My story is probably a little bit different than most people. I didn't grow up in the church at all, and um, I kind of had this view of life that I had a plan for my life, and I was going to do my plan and be successful at it, and then as long as I did my plan, then people would love me. You know, that was kind of my, my thought process. and didn't ever feel a need to go to church or, or need church. And then um, in about 2018, my life started to take a turn for the worst and I kind of had a career crisis. My marriage started to fall apart. Um, and then by 2020, um, I was entering into a divorce. And so I kind of tried everything that the world tells you to try. I did 
yoga, meditation, therapy, diet, exercise. Um, and obviously none of that worked. Not that any of that was bad, but none of that works. It was really kind of needing to um, find faith. And so I had two friends in the middle of my divorce that are members at Hope that said, um, why don't you come to Hope? And I said, I'm a divorcee. Like, the church is the last place that would want somebody like me. And they said, God redeems all things. And so I started coming to Hope um, because of them. I really thought that being a divorcee was going to be a very judgmental place. And what I found was that everybody was also a mess and willing to be raw and vulnerable and, and admit that. And what's ended up happening is just through joining women's Bible study and community group, I've actually had a lot of people approach me and say, hey, I'm going through the same thing that you've gone through. Can we meet for coffee? Can, we, can you tell me you know, how you got through this? It was an amazing gift to be able to turn around and say something that was so painful and so hard to go through, but now I can turn around and help other people in that. Um, and we, we don't have to hide it. This is not a place where you have to come and not be real and have to hide um, your difficulties. And so it just gave me the courage to be real with other people at church. And, and then through that, I think they turn around and be real back. So it's really, truly, you know, the tagline, real people, looking to the real Jesus for real change, it, they, the church actually lives that. It's not just a tagline. When I first came to Hope, I think I was skeptical. I had tried a lot of different things to fulfill what I was looking for. And the very first week that I was, the, during the sermon, Matt was preaching and he talked about college football, musicals, and World War II history. And I thought, this is my place. And then after that, just every week, the message would hit home in a different way. And again, I think it was the idea that it's really through God's grace alone, through our faith, that we are forgiven. Wasn't that great? Um, you're going to see several of these over the next several weeks. We had 14 people do these, and they are all just amazing. Um, but what I want us to think about as we come out of Elizabeth's uh, sharing is um, looking at that, what happens to a person who really understands the unconditional nature of Jesus's compassion, affection, and sufficiency for them? Um, they shamelessly give themselves to Jesus without reservation is what we see. Right. Look at verse 37. And a woman in town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. You see what she did? She gave Jesus her shame by sitting at his feet. She gave Jesus her sin by weeping. She gave Jesus her love by letting her hair down publicly and kissing him. And she gave Jesus her most treasured possession by anointing him with her perfume. And that's why we chose this passage for the second sermon series, uh, second sermon in our giving series. Uh, Galatians 5 6 puts it this way, it says, Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
And this is such a great picture of this because one of the things that happens is this event early in the ministry of Jesus becomes kind of the gold standard for women responding to the gospel. This happens several other times, most notably when Mary does this to him right before he is to be crucified. So somehow what this woman did spontaneously became the gold standard for worship. So the question is, what does Jesus want us to give him? Well, our faith in his shameless love for us that caused him to cancel our debt to God on the cross by paying it off completely with his blood and rising victorious over it so that we can take refuge in his compassionate gaze and shamelessly, like this woman, place our hearts, lives, and gifts at his feet with nothing to prove and nothing to lose. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come to you the way we really are so that we can receive from you all that you came to give us. Thank you, Lord, that you came to cancel our debts and to remove our shame with your compassionate love. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe that deep in our heart and then to express it as we worship you with all that we are and all that we have. In Christ's name, amen.